0: Is a, is a book that rose um, out of uh, actually a work I did in Ukraine when I was trying to understand why it was that so many corrupt Ukrainian officials um, kept their money uh, and their children and their property in the UK and how it happened and why no one could do anything about it. And sort of this sort of very simple question led to a down a bit of a rabbit hole, which it led to, you know, a, a kind of an examination of essentially how the world works, this dark side of globalization. it's about eight to ten percent of all the money in the world is out there somewhere offshore, no one really knows where it is, who owns it, anything like that. It is moneyland is is the third richest country in the world after America and China. And and, and it's you know a very sort of worrying adversary indeed. And I thought in order to try and explain how it works and, and, and why we in the UK should be concerned about our own role in enabling this whole sort of wholesale looting of the world. I thought I'd tell you the story of, of Nina, who is a Ukrainian mother, and her daughter, Nona, um, who is a, an 8-year-old, a really wonderful 8-year-old girl, very mischievous, very bouncy. Um, and and you know, I interviewed her um, a couple of years ago, and a really glorious interviewee, because she, you know, she just loves talking, which is just what you want. Um, but Nona does have a problem. She has hemophilia, which, as those of you probably know, is a disease that if you cut yourself or bruise yourself, the blood doesn't clot uh, the way it's supposed to. It's so that you have it as a genetic condition, and you, you don't have the clotting factor that you need to make your blood clot. It's, it's very easily treatable these days, mercifully, but regular injections of clotting factor, and people with hemophilia can live a totally ordinary life. Um, but sadly, uh, in Ukraine, um, uh, even though there is a constitutional guarantee for free health care for everyone, um, uh, there was no clotting factor available because. That the government couldn't afford it. They just didn't have the money to buy it. So instead of Nonna having regular uh, injections, of clotting factor, which meant that she could play outside like an ordinary child, uh, her mum had to keep her indoors. They had a swing in the hallway that she could play on, but they had to really keep her indoors. And then every night, Nonna and Nina would sleep next to each other. And Nina had essentially trained herself throughout, through the course of being a mother to, to recognize the smell of blood. And if she smelled blood while asleep, she would wake up put her daughter in the car, drive to hospital and hope that the hospital had the clotting factor that was needed to save her daughter's life. That was how they lived, day after day after day. Um, What was particularly disturbing about this is because I I spent a lot of time looking into how the hospitals worked and how the healthcare system worked is that the ministers um, of Ukrainian health ministry and the, the directors of the major hospitals were all doing very well indeed. They, all of them, had, you know, Mercedeses, they had high-class cars, they sent their children to school here in the UK, they they owned villas in Cyprus and so on, and there was this essentially this mismatch between um, what Nonna was going through and Nina was going through, which was this, you know, hand-to-mouth, you know, essentially never quite knowing if Nonna was going to survive the day existence, and what the people who were supposed to be looking after her were going through, which is they were living really very well indeed. Um, and I found myself, you know, essentially trying to figure out where the money went. How does the money go? And, and, and this is a, I mean, this, this, this story I, I remembered last month um, when the Danske Bank scandal broke. I don't know if you read about it in the papers, but um, this is probably the biggest money laundering scandal of all time. Um, 200 billion euros moved via the non-resident accounts of one branch of one bank in, in, in one of the three Baltic states. It is, a, you know, the tip of a very large iceberg of dirty money which is moving out of the former Soviet Union, people talk mainly about Russia. Most of the money came from Russia, but it also came from Ukraine. People like the health minister of Ukraine were moving money through accounts like this and shipping them overseas. If um, you remember the HSBC drug money scandal, um, that was about 250 times smaller than the Danske Bank money laundering scandal. This is an absolute giant whale of a scandal which will re- reverberate on and on and on. And it's very peculiar that we haven't spoken about it more here in Britain because the single biggest group of account holders at Danske Bank during the period in question 2007-15 to 15, were not Russian, they weren't Ukrainian, they weren't Kazakh or Azeri or Kyrgyzstani, they were British. But these weren't British people who decided that for some reason they were going to bank at a branch of a Danish bank in, in Tallinn. These were British companies, in fact they were British limited partnerships, limited liability partnerships and Scottish limited partnerships, which were and have been for a long time, in fact still are to a certain extent, the favoured vehicles of choice for crooks from the former Soviet Union to use to disguise their ownership of the assets that they've stolen. Um, Essentially, if you own your bank account in Tallinn via a limited liability partnership, there is enough plausible deniability for the bankers to pretend that actually you're not a crook at all. You're just an ordinary British investor. And then the the limited liability partnership is in turn owned by companies in Shell, companies, and and you you gain anonymity that way. this has been known about for you know years. It's been ri- being written about in Private Eye for a decade. It's been in the main sort of, major publications for five or six years, and yet the government has consistently failed to do anything about it. And it's interesting why the government has failed to do anything about it. We know from their own from their own words that because in in uh, in March there was a debate about this, where there was a suggestion that that the rules that allow this to happen be tightened up. John Glenn, who's a Treasury minister, answered for the government. Uh, to oppose a Labour amendment that would have cracked down on this, in which he said, um, uh, basically the Labour um, amendment would have meant that you couldn't lie if you owned the company anymore. You wouldn't be able to pretend to be a British limited liability partnership if you were actually the president of Ukraine. You had to say who you really were, which meant that the banks couldn't pretend they didn't know who you were anymore and move your money in it with sort of plausible deniability. And John Glenn's words were this, the impact on resources to carry out due diligence on that number of companies would be considerable. The overall cost of the UK economy could run into the hundreds of millions of pounds a year. What he's saying is that Britain can't afford to check. Um, you know, there are hundreds of billions of euros moving through this one bank in the Baltics. There are trillions of dollars moving, in general, from the world's poorest countries—a trillion dollars probably every year—draining out of the world's poorest countries, being moved through. Um, structures like Britain's limited liability partnerships or similar structures in their offshore territories and our Crown dependencies every year which are ending up here in London but we don't want to do anything about it because, in the words of the government, we can't afford it. The overall cost would be hundreds of millions of pounds a year. Um, And this is essentially money land encapsulated. The, 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 The victims of this crime, people like Nonna, are suffering terrible hardship, really unimaginable hardship but we, they're far away, we can't really see them or feel them um, and therefore we put up with this because to do anything about it would cost us, frankly, by the standards of Britain, pennies. Um, and what's particularly dark about this story, um, and, uh, from my perspective, is that the story of Nina and Nonna is one I found out about while making a film for Global Witness. Um I was, Global Witness won the TED Prize two or three years ago, and, and part of the prize was that a film got made, and I was working with a film director to make a film about corruption in Ukraine. That's how we met Nina and Nona. Two days before we were due to screen that film, um, we were contacted by uh, lawyers for a Ukrainian gentleman we mentioned in the film, a British law, libel law firm, who pointed out that if we uh, screened it, they would come after us for absolutely everything we have, and would basically keep coming after us forever. So the film has never been shown. No one has ever actually been able to see Nonna on screen talking about the troubles she faces. And this is, you know, again, Moneyland encapsulated. We are making money out of a situation and the rest of the world is the poorer for it. So that's what my book's about. It's actually quite funny, though, so don't be too depressed.
1: It, <laughs> it, is, it, it, it is quite funny. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't agree more. And it, you remind me there of something that I was told... I was uh, interviewing the Israeli intelligence officer at, uh, this was when I was writing Luke Mafia, at the uh, embassy in Washington, who had previously been the central investigator in uh, Tel Aviv of the Russian community uh, and Russian organized crime inside Israel. And I said to him, I said, look, if I start investigating some of these people, uh, am I going to get a bullet in the back of my head? and they said somebody like you in the united kingdom they're much more likely to sue you to death so uh, you will be in the law courts for the rest of your life and they have billions of billions of dollars of resources to keep you there to keep you tied up so that you won't be able to express yourself he said that if you were a journalist in Ukraine or something like that, then yes, they put a bullet in the back of your head. And we're going to come on to that later because we've had some very, very disturbing developments in the world of investigative journalism in Europe over the, over the past year. Um, but, Ollie, it's interesting. You, you raise a, a real paradox there, which I hope Ava and then Jane and then you again are going to be explained to us. Because on the one hand... We have this very confrontational relationship with Russia uh, and with people who are, uh, you know, clearly benefiting from the Russian regime and laundering their money through the United Kingdom, um, uh, and we allow this to we allow this to go on. So, so how can we be in a position of being very anti-Putin and then allowing Putin's cronies to put money through? through London in the way that we do. And and I'd like to call on uh, Ava now from Global Witness to explain how that actually works. How does this money get shoveled through London uh, to the extent that it does?
2: Thank you, Misha. Um, So as Misha mentioned earlier, I work on Global Witness's anti-corruption campaigns. You could say that the work that we do looks at the entry points between the world that we all live in and money land, and we try and get in the way. We basically try and make it much harder for the bad guys to move into money land, move their money into into money land and get away with it. That's our job. So to start, I'd like you all to take a moment and imagine that you are an oligarch, or a kleptocrat, or a drug trafficker. The choice is yours. (laughs) But the main thing is that you have a lot of money that you want to hide. And I mean in like the tens or hundreds of millions of dollars. It might be profits from drug trafficking, money that you've skimmed off the state, or perhaps it's just outright bribes that you've received in return for political favors. So what are you gonna do? Well, you'll do what all of these people do. You'll hide that money offshore in money land. Like a Russian doll, You set one company up inside another company, inside another company, inside another company, until it becomes practically impossible for anyone to work out what's really going on. You'll probably want to start somewhere that offers complete secrecy, somewhere like the British Virgin Islands, and then it's always nice to throw a a UK company into the mix because they give an air of legitimacy, as Oliver mentioned earlier. Now, I know this all sounds quite complicated, but don't worry You can get a law firm or an accountant or a financial advisor to help you set the whole thing up. And if you're lucky, they'll even put their name on the companies instead for you. So it will be their names that pop up rather than yours. Once that's all set up, you can use these companies to open bank accounts, buy property, and ultimately move your money around until it looks completely clean and totally unconnected to the really dubious way that you got hold of it. Then you get to spend it on whatever you want even if that's a new identity, or at least a new passport or a visa. For a price, your lawyer can get you one of those, and we've seen a huge rise in the golden visa market all around the world, including in the US and the UK, but I think that's also something that we'll come to talk about in a moment. Now, as you'll know, now that you're living this life of crime, it's the anonymity and the secrecy that's really important here. These anonymous companies aren't just a way into money land, they're the very framework on which money land exists. And so at Global Witness, we campaign to end them. And with investigative journalists like Jane, Oliver and Misha and other organisations like Transparency International, we've been doing a pretty good job recently. Earlier this year, the UK government did something really amazing and that's really not something that I say very often.
0: <laughs>
2: they announced that the UK's overseas territories would have to open up They'd have to introduce a public register of the real owners of these anonymous companies so they wouldn't be anonymous anymore. This is really, really huge. If you remember the Panama Papers back in 2016, the one that forced the Icelandic Prime Minister to resign and also exposed that Putin's cello-playing friends happened to have a billion dollars stored offshore, so that big, big scandal. Over half of the companies in that league were in the British overseas territories. Over half of them. So forcing them to open up would really change the global landscape. And to be frank, sorry, but some of these places have built their entire economies around selling this kind of secrecy. And so they're going to fight back really hard, and we're going to need the government to be really, really strong. And we're also going to need the government to support these places in developing new economies that don't profit from other nations being plundered. And to be frank, we really don't know what kind of government, if any, we're gonna have in the next few months. Um, And so this amazing, groundbreaking legislation that could change this really messed up global economy and global structure um, could be lost. And even if it's not, we think the government needs to go further. When people talk about the UK's tax havens, they mean the overseas territories and the Crown dependencies. Those are places like Guernsey, Jersey, and the Isle of Man. Right now, this legislation will only apply to the overseas territories. You might have read last week about the most expensive property in the UK. It's one Hyde Park, and it comes with two wine cellars, which is pretty impressive for a penthouse, and 24 hour room service to the Mandarin Oriental Hotel. Um, so, Nick Candy of the Candy Brothers. He sold this property to two anonymous Guernsey companies. So the most expensive property in the UK is owned by two anonymous companies that are registered in the UK's own crown dependencies and we have no way of knowing who's behind them. In this particular case Nick Candy announced that he had in fact sold the properties to himself which raises its own questions but he really didn't have to do that. And the vast majority of people who invest in this kind of secrecy aren't going to. And there are a lot of these people, or at least a lot of property that's owned by anonymous companies. <coughs> For all we know, they could all be owned by the same person. They're probably not, but it's a scary thought. We looked at the land registry data, and we discovered that 86,000 properties in the UK are owned by anonymous companies. So we have no idea who's behind them. That's a land mass three times bigger than Greater London. But most of them are actually in London. In Westminster, there are 10,000 anonymously owned properties. And the problems come to East London as well, so just down the road in Tower Hamlets, which is also the borough that has the highest rates of child poverty in the whole country. They've seen an increase of 11% in the number of anonymously owned properties there.
1: Ava, I I think it's worth mentioning at this point that uh, let's just think about that number 10,000 properties in Westminster alone uh, and our government has no idea who the actual owner of those properties are they could be Chinese gambling consortia, they could be American tax evaders, they could be Mexican cartels, they could be Russian gangsters we do not know and so when you hear your government talking about the need to take back control uh, I would suggest that you ask them to establish who owns 10,000 properties in London which is not going to be affected by Brexit because they will continue to be owned by uh, uh, anonymous companies. So uh, there are there are real issues here affecting affecting us. This is, you know, these uh, uh, this is in our country these are rents that we have to pay. Uh, in London. I think it's 50% of Baker Street is owned by anonymous companies. But uh, Eva, I'd like to uh, move on a little bit here to Jane if I may, because um, we, we've got a sense of the extent and the range of what happens uh, in Moneyland, but uh, Jane has done some really excellent investigative reporting on how things, how things function, how corporate entities Um, are exploited by corrupt politicians and people involved in organized crime. And I just wonder, well, I don't wonder because I've done this sort of thing before myself as well. But I'd like Jane to explain to us, how do you actually go about investigating corruption, powerful companies, powerful individuals, often with contacts with with governments? How, How do you start on that sort of thing?
3: Um, So, we, just a bit background, I'm one of five journalists on the BuzzFeed London investigations team and we were set off specifically to investigate London or the UK's role in Dirty Money. Um, That was by our bosses in the US and that's because of London's reputation as a safe haven for Dirty Money. So, that was specifically the role we were (coughs) tasked with from the start four years ago and we've not really stopped since, to be honest. it, from my experience, dirty money always leads to London, or Surrey maybe, but usually London. And um, we started off started off looking into kind of financial corruption, uh, financial crime and corruption across the UK. And I think when you do a lot of financial investigations, people maybe expect you to kind of be those journalists who are buried up to their neck in documents and company accounts. And often we are, but even in financial investigative journalism, it always starts with. With a source, a person, it's still about the people. So, with um, a story we did into one of um, the conservative government's biggest corporate donors, like a mobile, uh, a UK-based but really offshore telecoms giant, um, that started with um, a private eye source who came to us and said that this company was believed to be uh, money laundering, and that was then that the telephone company side of things was in part a front so um, this private eye company had basically um, done a report and they'd followed these bag men for the company who despite being a company with a multi-million pound turnover they were using um, an unmarked people carrier kind of these four men with backpacks on their back who every day would go and deposit hundreds of thousands of pounds at post offices across london um, so their report kind of detailed where it started um, where they picked up the money where they went to and it was incredibly unusual to be um, to be carrying that much money in a backpack in an unmarked people carrier especially when as we later observed you'd have kind of the official g4s security bands picking up some of the money and then you'd have these weird unmarked um, people carriers running off with backpack stuff with cash for the other half of the company um, So it started with that source. Then we obviously didn't... We wouldn't never accept that face value, so we wanted to verify it ourselves. So um, we basically recreated the surveillance. So we hired cars and some wigs, and we followed them for six weeks, starting at the (coughs) depot in East London. We'd watch them picking up the bags. We'd watch them um, go and deposit it at post offices. Um, And we spoke to experts and ciders who basically all said that this for all the hallmarks of money laundering um, and this wasn't from legitimate means. So we eventually, we published that story. Um, Basically, um, we couldn't prove definitively it was money laundering, we didn't have those resources, we didn't have access to the bank accounts and all the rest, but um, we reported it as the suspicious transactions which bore hallmarks of money laundering according to dozens of experts and insiders. Um, After we published that first story in our series, Obviously, we expected some action from the UK authorities. That didn't happen. But, in fact, they accepted hundreds of thousands of pounds more in donations from Leica like Mobile. Um, but over the water in France, the French authorities had taken notice. And they basically started their own investigation, which eventually ended up in them um, them arresting 19 people who worked for one of Lyca like Mobile's subsidiaries. And they launched a huge criminal pro- probe um, Uh, into into them in suspicion of tax fraud and money laundering Um, and we managed to get hold of their intelligence report which detailed all the evidence about that and again it kind of listed, it basically detailed how this money laundering network worked through these shell companies, um, which supposedly turned over millions a year. Um, but the authorities suspected that they were just PO boxes and empty shells, basically. So we got a list of all these companies that were turning over millions. Um, I think there were about um, 19, to, 19 to 25. And we all got in our cars, we went to Paris, and we, we visited every single one of those addresses. And we were amazed at how unsophisticated it was. There wasn't even a pretence it was a business. We couldn't find like mobile cards on, say, like, any of these company addresses. Most of them were PO boxes or deserted houses or, um, or just, yeah, di- um, all garages. Basically, there was no sign of business there. So we photographed this, we filmed it all, we doorstepped and um, all the rest. Um, and we also discovered, and this was the most shocking part of it really, was. Um, the French police, the French law enforcement, had gone to HMRC over here and asked for the, their help investigating like Mobile. Um, they presented their evidence and said they believe they part of this huge money laundering scam, um, and would the UK authorities help them raid like Mobile's offices in the UK? Um, and they said no. Um, not only did they say that, they wrote a letter, which we obtained, which showed that the um, they said they refused to help and then out the raid and they cited the fact that they were the Conservative Party's biggest corporate donor and donated to Prince Charles Trust in writing, which was incredible, the arrogance of that. Um, so, so we went to the HMRC, we spoke to the press office, and they initially denied it. They said someone from HMRC would never write a letter like that. And the words, I remember, it's such a brilliant quote, the words were along the lines of, um, this is the United Kingdom's, for God's sake, not some third world banana republic. (laughs) And then they checked the letter that we had and verified it, found out it was accurate, and then released another statement saying it's regrettable. (laughs) So I think we all kind of know what kind of banana republic it is. So that's kind of one example of an investigation we did, and I think it's important because we hear a lot right now from us as well as the rest of the media in Parliament um, of questionable or dirty foreign money, but this also is an issue at home. This was a UK-based company. Yes, it used loads of offshore accounts, but it was UK-based. It was the Conservative Party's biggest corporate donor, and this was happening under their nose. So it's not just foreign money.
1: Yeah. And the, the point about Moneyland, in a way, is, is that money is being transferred from ordinary people, ordinary citizens who are paying taxes and being handed to financial institutions and people who are often already very, very rich indeed. And it's all of us who are suffering as a consequence, particularly in the past 10 years. The financial crash of 2008 was a monumental example of this. And we have been engaged in austerity policies ever since. And we are paying off the debts run up by banks and other financial institutions using these, uh, these mechanisms, these, these uh, vehicles uh, in order to, uh, to enjoy this wealth which they have ripped off from a, an, a, a wide variety of sources, not least of which is mineral resources which is where Ava and Global Witness come in. But um, there is also a backlash against this. Uh, it's been very interesting over the past few years to see that uh, some institutions and some constituencies have said enough is enough and uh, for example president Zuma the former president of uh, South Africa is under mul- multiple investigations for financial uh, malfeasance and political corruption at the moment we have a president uh, former president of South Korea in jail we have um, a uh, Prime Minister of Malaysia uh, uh, in jail and under, in, uh, uh, or under investigation. We have a huge political corruption scandal going on in Brazil and so on and so forth. And you have organizations like Global Witness and Transparency International lobbying and lobbying successfully with legislators in Brussels, in London, in Washington, where the real power is to try and change legislation so that companies are accountable for what they do, so I want to uh, ask Oliver here about what 's been happening in the United Kingdom and specifically the uh, unexplained wealth orders which came in earlier this year, if I may immodestly say they 're referred to as the McMafia law um, and uh, uh, but this is. Potentially important tool against the the uh, nobles and kings and queens of land So, can you explain to us about the unexplained wealth orders? And also, we've had this case recently of the uh, Azeri, uh, the Azeri, uh, the 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 wife of the uh, former um, uh, head of the International Bank of Azerbaijan, um, uh, Hajiev Zamira Hajia um, what is all that about? And is, it, is the British government finally getting hard on these things? Um, it's actually, interestingly, I heard the other day that the, the new Economic Crime
0: Command was originally intended only to target fraud. And then a week before the announcement, the first episode of MacMathia screened, and, and it was immediately expanded to include money laundering. But they, they didn't increase the budget at all, obviously. Um, who needs to do that? Um, uh, unexplained wealth orders, if you haven't been following them, are really interesting new legal tool available to investigators to target moneyland kleptocrats, the, the, the general rich and unscrupulous people who like to stash their money here. There is for for decades been a real problem which is that essentially corruption, modern corruption, grand corruption is, is transnational by nature. It involves multiple jurisdictions. The money is stolen from say Angola, it's laundered in Nevis, the Bahamas, wherever and it's spent here in the UK and and in order to take some kind of action against that money you need to go all the way back down the chain and prove a crime right at the beginning and this is very hard if the person who is committing the crime also runs the country where the crime was committed because it's very difficult in fact impossible to get the prosecutorial agencies in that country to cooperate with you so essentially there's been you know, if you steal a lot of money and stash it in the UK or in the US or wherever, it's, it's, it's a one-way bet. It's almost impossible for that money to be confiscated from you. And this has been a real problem for a long time. Um, and this is where unexplained wealth orders come in. Uh, the idea of them is that instead of assuming someone is innocent, you assume that they're guilty. Um, if their salary is, say, a hundred thousand pounds a year and they've spent a hundred million pounds on a house in the UK, you say that cannot be right. You cannot have obtained that money legally. Prove that you did. And if and if you can't prove that you did, then um, the house is taken away from you. This isn't a substitute for putting people in jail. This isn't, this isn't a criminal proceedings. It's still a civil proceedings. But, but essentially, it's to try and deny people the fruit of their theft, with the essential the assumption being that if you can't enjoy the fruit of your theft, maybe people won't steal it in the first place. I mean, it, you know, it's, it's imperfect. It's not, it, it, it would be nicer to put people in jail, but it's better than nothing. And we do have the first case, this is Eri... Banker, in fact, his Zereb banker's wife, because the Azeri banker is in jail in Azerbaijan, and and his and her three properties here in the UK, one a house in London, and I believe a golf course in it's Surrey, isn't it? Presumably in Surrey. I don't know what it is about Surrey. Um, and there are more supposedly in the pipeline, as I understand it from the newspaper, says either two hundred or eight or six or four, um, a, a number uh, anyway in the pipeline, possibly, uh, which will follow this one up. Um, and that's good, but. If you look at the scale of the problem that we're up against, according to our government's own <coughs> estimates, the National Crime Agency's own estimates, the total amount of money laundered through the City of London each year is 190, 190 billion with a B pounds. You know, it's a massive, huge amount of money. The combined budgets of the Serious Fraud Office, the National Crime Agency's Economic um, direct, uh, Department, and the Economic Crime Directorate combined is barely 70 million pounds it's 200 times less money is being spent on enforcement than the money that is flowing through here every year it is not surprising that we are dramatically losing the battle we are asking our police to go in to the you know to fight a tank with a paper sword um so we really really need to help um to 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 insist that that our, that the investigative agencies get budgets which are in some way commensurate with the scale of the task that they're facing um and they're also um It should be said our regulatory architecture is not fit for purpose either. I'm currently doing an article about anti-money laundering um, regulations. I went in today to talk to one of the people who's in charge of regulating one of the sectors of the UK economy. Um, He works for the Archbishop of Canterbury's Faculty Office. Um, uh, He's a very, very nice guy. Um, uh, He's in charge of 17 notaries public who possibly are exposed to money laundering. Um, There are 23 other people like him. In charge of regulating money laundering in this country, he is a very, very nice guy. But this is clearly not a joined-up system. This is not a design system. He, as he himself said, if we were to start from somewhere, we wouldn't start from here. Um, it, you know, we are this. We have not been taking money laundering seriously. We have not been resourcing our agencies correctly. We have not been designing our regulations. And it really is, you know, it's lovely. That the government is boasting about mafia laws, and it's lovely that they're bringing in on its own wealth almost. But this is a, you know, it is a drop in a very large bucket.
1: I, and that's really shocking. What you say, bearing in mind what you said about the Danske Bank scandal earlier on, that that two hundred billion euros laundered through the Danske Bank was over a ten-year period. And what you're saying is is that more than that amount is being laundered, one hundred and ninety billion dollars through the United Kingdom every year. And that's
0: just through the United Kingdom, that's not including our satellite territories, obviously the Channel Islands, the Isle of Man and the various, uh, the Gibraltar and then the tax havens in, in, in the Caribbean plus Bermuda. We are a you know a world leader in this industry um, you know uh, um, we, which is always <coughs> nice to hear but possibly maybe something we shouldn't be too proud of. Why? Well I'm um, uh, uh,
1: well, going to open up to, to questions in a minute but I want to hear a uh, Uh, briefly again from from Eva and Jane and Ava, Jane explained to us about how you go about investigating something but uh, as uh, uh, Ollie has emphasised, there are some very powerful interests at play here and recently over the past year or so, it has become increasingly dangerous as a journalist to investigate these things now we always thought that in the European Union with the possible exception of one or two geographical areas like Italy um, investigating malfeasance corruption and and organized crime was a difficult but uh, you know I wouldn't say a relatively safe but you didn't expect to be killed but that is changing isn't it yeah absolutely so
2: um, heartbreakingly the weekend before last, the third investigative journalist in Europe was murdered in the last year, which is pretty terrifying. Yesterday was the first anniversary of Daphne Caruana Galizia's death. Um, and yeah, I think it's just horrifying. Investigative journalists, particularly those looking at corruption, are really at the front line of all of the work that we do. And they're really driving enormous change. The response of the Panama Papers across the EU was to introduce public registers in all member states, and that's genuinely something that I think everyone who's working on this really didn't think was possible, kind of five or six years ago. And this amazing collaborative piece of work that took lots and lots of journalists all around the world, like kind of years to prepare, has completely changed the landscape. I think it's really important that investigative journalists are safeguarded if we're going to be able to continue this work, because otherwise the bad guys are
1: going to win. Yes, because also what was characteristic, what was really striking about those those uh, three murders, um, was that they were mafia style mafia style murders. They were there to send a real message. Daphne was blown up in her car. Uh, Jan Kuciak, the the twenty seven year old Slovak journalist, was. Uh, shot in the head along with his, his girlfriend who incidentally the other thing uh, uh, about that is, is that in early August the girlfriend who had nothing to do this is, was not investigating the Ingrange, the uh, Italian organized crime operation uh, that Kutsiak was investigating her grave was uh, defaced um, and has been on, on several occasions by gangsters it's a really, really hideous culture that is creeping into our to our continent. And uh, Victoria Maninova, the Bulgarian journalist, was killed in the most, uh, uh, and rape in the most hor- horrific way. Uh, Jane, can you explain to us what the challenges are that you face now in terms of, you've, you've investigated murders, specifically uh, 14 sort of suspicious suspicious deaths in uh, in the united kingdom of of russians is impunity something that people who inhabit moneyland assume these days
3: yeah it certainly seems to be from the, the three deaths that three murders that we've just heard about there and i think sometimes when we talk about um financial crime or corruption there's this misconception that it's this victimless crime that it's not proper organised crime. It's just white collar crime, um, where those deaths have highlighted even more obviously than usual that, even more brazenly than usual that that financial crime is at the heart of organised crime. It drives it. It enables it. It's not this separate victimless crime. Um, the the investigation that um, Misha mentioned that we did last year into the fourteen suspicious Russia-linked deaths. Money was at the heart of that as well. Um, those deaths included um, a ring of eight businessmen who were all linked to the oligarch uh, Boris Berezovsky, um, and they were they were up to their heads in um, uh, up to their necks, sorry, in, um, uh, pro- in in properties and businesses um, in in the UK that they were using to hide or funnel or stash questionable funds. Um, another one of those deaths. Um, a Russian financier called Alexander Peripolichny, who dropped dead outside his home in Surrey in 2012. He just fled Moscow after um, blowing the whistle on this huge $230 million fraud, known as a hermitage fraud, and that was linked, or allegedly linked, to the Kremlin. And we know that from, from the hermitage's evidence that 30 million of that money ended up being funneled through British banks, largely through British shell companies. Um, so, I think we need to kind of move away from this misconception. I mean, I think but before I did the Russia investigation with um, my team, um, I feel like I was probably quite naive. The first, the only threats I'd really have to worry about was legal threats, which is stressful enough, enough as we all know. But doing that investigation into the suspected Russian assassinations was a whole different level. for the first time in my career, um, I, we all had to think about our safety. Um, My editor, Heidi Blake, she had to move into a hotel for the last month before we published because a car turned up outside her door every single day when she got back from work for six weeks before we published. Another colleague had to do the same. Um, I only had suspicious Russian hacks of my hotmail address, which serves me right for still using hotmail, I guess. But, um, But it was the first time I had to consider safety. And you always, when people ask me that question, especially having done... Russia story I always feel like a bit of a twat for answering saying yeah I was scared because you've got these investigative journalists in Russia um, in the rest of Europe which are all our faults our government has it doesn't murder journalists um, or mafia or organized crime groups around here so um, I think any risk that we take is nothing compared to the risks that journalists in those kind of countries take.
1: Very good point. Um, okay, I want to throw it open to the uh, to the audience now. I think we've got about twenty minutes. Is that right for questions? Yep, twenty minutes for questions. Good. So, sir. Oh, oh. Just coming. Just coming. you could, uh, if everyone could state their their name, if they're interested in their professional relationship, no, um, and uh, questions rather than statements.
4: Yeah, um, you and Grant, I'm the um, former customs and excise intelligence analyst for the ex-Soviet states, most of my post-career has been in those countries, not Russia itself frequently uh, handed out copies of McMafia in training courses in those countries. We've usually discussed the book, but I haven't had to explain it because most people already in the room are aware of it. My question is this for all of you. Are there any, have you received any invitations, I'm referring to you individually and collectively, to give any presentations at English and Scottish private schools and universities mm-hmm. with large numbers of pupils and students from these countries. Might I suggest we start with Oxbridge, Durham, and Edinburgh? Mm-hmm. If you haven't received any invites, um, why not?
0: Actually, I, I, I did, I did. I gave a talk I to, um, I, there was a guy who came up to me at a literary festival and asked me to speak at his school, and I did. And it was. Haleybury, which is in, I think, it's in the home county somewhere, a couple of is at Hertfordshire maybe. And I went there and, uh, to talk to his sick form, and there was a bloke at the back of the class who it turned out was a Vuna Polar, And anyone who knows rugby knows vounapolas are like, you know, they're they they play for England and and he was took after his uncle who plays for England a very big bloke, and he sat there at the back of the row and he looked at me like this all the way through. He didn't he didn't move throughout the entire time I was talking about money laundering and how terrible it was. And at the end he just put his hand up and he goes, Mister, if you know all this, why don't you just do it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> there it's what they teach them at private schools these days. <laughs> Other than that, I'm afraid I've received no invitations to speak at private schools. But anyone here who works for a private
1: school, you know, <laughs> chuck me a bit of cash on there. Private schools over? No, sorry. Jane? No, I'm from Holes, no. So I <laughs> so, Um No, I went back to my direct grant school. Um, as an alumnus uh, to talk, but not about this, they asked me to talk about Brazil. so It
0: should be said, for those interested in, anyone interested in investigating these kind of issues, um, there are significant populations in British, or I suppose primarily English, private schools of students from China and Hong Kong, um, mm-hmm. and if anyone's interested in investigating <laughs> the provenance of the money that pays for their school fees,
1: um, that might be an interesting subject. To look
4: <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I can tell some stories about that, but I'm not going to do it now. There was oh. Uh, hello, so I work for the financial unit of a tier one
4: bank here.
1: Uh, sorry. Can you can you wait for that? And uh, is the mic switched on? Hello. Yeah. Oh, yeah,
4: so I work in a tier one bank here in the financial unit. So the UK is due to leave the EU soon. How do you feel that that's going to impact on our machine in terms of the AML, and how do you think that's impacting the attractiveness of the UK to people from the seeking to
2: move to my lands? Well, it's not looking great. (laughs) (laughs) I think the level of uncertainty is really appealing for people wanting to kind of go about unnoticed, and that's Mm -hmm. a really frightening thing. Um, we also just really don't know what kind of government we're going to have, and you know, some, um, some people really support all of this. You know, we've got some really, really fantastic policy uh, in place, or soon to be in place. All of that could be derailed, or it could, um, it could be introduced but not be funded at all, and then I think we'd be, we'd be really screwed. Um, at the moment, all of the uh, EU's anti-money laundering legislation is supposed to be coming into UK law. I, just, I think it's just, yeah, we just don't really know what's going to happen right now. Um, interestingly, uh, so we've just released a report on golden visas, and we were looking at the stats on UK golden visas and whether or not Can they have Can you explain what golden
1: visas are, Eva, because this know. is a very important point.
2: Um, so, golden visas, or golden passports, are um, a kind of catch-all term to talk about citizenship or residency by investment. So, in the UK right now, if you're willing to invest £2 million pounds, you can get a residency, and it like speeds up your uh, process to becoming a, a full-blown UK citizen, and then you get that money back with interest. Um, for a while, there was a blind faith period, which happened to be when Theresa May was uh, Home Secretary, and they let 3,000 people in without doing any checks whatsoever on who they were or where their money was coming from. Yeah, including Samira um, Hadjieva, who we just discovered um, was the target of the unexplained wealth order. She's the one who was spending £16 million in Harrods. They didn't think to check uh, where her money came from when they kind of waved her in. Um, but so, uh, just to speak to your point, uh, when Brexit was announced, the rates of um, Chinese nationals applying for UK Tier one investor visas really rose, and we don't really know why that is, but we're interested.
1: So I'd, I'd like to say something about the uh, about Brexit situation. Security and law enforcement is an issue that has not been discussed uh, within the Brexit debate, which coming from the Tory party who are in government, I am very surprised at, as I thought traditionally they were the party of law enforcement and law and order and so on and so forth. The minute we leave the European Union, we are out of a whole range of institutions Uh, that deal with law enforcement and with regulatory issues around finance. Above all, we're out of Europol. You cannot be a member of Europol um, (coughs) uh, unless you're a member of the European Union. And we depend a lot on the shared data that we get from the European Union in terms of our own investigations, law enforcement investigations. Um, When it comes to cybercrime, we're very dependent on this cooperation Uh, With the uh, with the EU, that goes out of the window. Various intelligence operations go out of the window as well. All of these things will have to be renegotiated. We haven't even begun to put the security the security question onto the uh, uh, onto the Brexit uh, agenda. So I am deeply concerned now. At the moment, the anti-money laundering the 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 fifth iteration of the uh, the anti money laundering directive, which is the, the latest one applying to the EU, is, uh, applies to the EU. We absorb that. We have to absorb GDPR, the uh, general data protection uh, regulation, otherwise, we won't be allowed to do any business with Europe. Although, you know, at the rate things are going, we may not be allowed to <laughs> any now. Um, so there are, there are a number of issues to do with financial regulation. We don't know what's going to happen to the passporting rights. We don't know what's going to happen to the city. Um, and so there will be an, a, a temptation in terms of, uh, if we go for a no-deal solution, if, if you have a no-deal solution, there will be a temptation to turn Britain into a one big floating offshore uh, offshore island, and I note that one of the few people who has not withdrawn from the Davos in the desert uh, financial investment conference in Saudi Arabia in the wake of Khashoggi's murder is Liam Fox our trade minister
5: Sir so. Thank you for that and um, I suppose for all the panel but I, I'm D- David Clark I, I, I'm a former cop and I um, Actually, set up a thing called National Fraud Intelligence Bureau and Action Fraud, which you may know of, with the intention of receiving more and more information like this. They get some, and not a lot. Uh, Misha, you um, fascinating. Enjoyed reading your book. Likewise, whenever I'm out uh, training around the world, is showing your book. I'm surprised so few people in compliance and uh, financial crime have never read it and don't want to read it. Uh, but you probably know why that is. Um, And I'm looking fascinated, looking forward to Moneyland and reading that. My question though is around this size. You mentioned the 190 billion that NCA talk about. You know, fascinating figure uh, just for the UK. Uh, You touch on it in your book, Misha, towards the end about the bond market and derivatives. Because we record and and try to get that tip of the iceberg in what we think is the, the figure of organized crime the nasty villains, the terrorists, the things that will come back to Northern Ireland with, with dreadful recourse if we're not careful. But nobody seems to talk about You touched on it. After the financial crisis, derivatives and the bond market, particularly around uh, residential property in the US that brought down very nearly the world system, was meant to be fixed. As we've now discovered from the IMF and indeed Rothschild's latest report, it hasn't it's gone from three hundred and sixty five trillion that we were back in two thousand seven eight to around six hundred trillion our entire gdp is only seventy eight trillion you made a good point you bought Misha about you know why do i start pushing money around counts in <coughs> things like this if i'm uh, italian mafia ukrainian mafia u.s mafia i work in bonds and derivatives and a small percentage of if a small percentage of that 600 trillion is fraud, money laundering, corruption, well, I can tell you from the police inside, we've cut 20% of our police resources. We don't have the numbers. Everyone I recruited, they're leaving and going to work for other agencies. Financial crime teams don't look at derivatives. What should the government be doing? Because UK and US are the biggest leads in this. In your book, I don't touched on it. I don't know if yours does yet, but forward, to it. what uh, should we be doing? Uh, well, uh, uh,
1: thanks for the question. I, Ollie's book does touch on it, and he has some very, very good descriptions of why 2008 happened. Uh, and I know that there is a, a lot of discussion uh, amongst economists at the moment about how concerned they are that a repeat of 2008 may be on the cards in the near future. Olly, what did you take away from that? Because uh, this is a great part of the book, by the way, because he describes everything that led to 2008 in a way that A, is interesting, but B, you end up getting it, you understand it.
0: Well, I just want to say briefly to what you're saying about the police and the investigative agencies. I I had um, some really interesting interviews in the US with with your counterparts, former colleagues in, in the FBI and other federal investigative agencies, of which there, there are many, um, and they were talking about shell companies and the difficulties they face with shell companies. This guy called John Tobin, who works in Miami-Dade, which is the, very much the front line of trying to resist kleptocratic cash from South America, above Venezuela, Brazil, Argentina, and so on. He said that half of his time, literally half of his time is spent trying to figure out who owns things. You know, if there was transparency in ownership of property, he would be able to do twice as many investigations. I mean, that is—it is absolutely jaw-dropping that how difficult he finds it to get past this issue of of shell companies. And when you talk about resources being cut by twenty percent, um, it's not just that police are having their money taken away from them. Their their job is being hamstrung by the fact that we have this utterly, unbelievably illogical system that we've that we have allowed to develop, and it's very very tricky. Um, I mean, I think, from my perspective, the, the most fascinating bit about researching the book—actually, there were many fascinating bits—was in terms of this response to 2008. And um, there was this broad response, which was which was great in terms of trying to stop tax havens stealing our tax revenue. And there was this this, this assault, above all, on Switzerland, um, led by the United States, but but joined in by other countries. Um, and and you know, and they succeeded. They did manage to, to essentially break Switzerland. Switzerland is no longer the, the haven of of, of secrecy that it was, and, and you know, and, and has lost a lot of business as a result. But what's particularly interesting, um, in fact, extraordinary to me, um, is the the country that's taken its place as, as the the, the forepost of, of of banking secrecy and tax haven is now the United States, and it's not um, a bit, you know, it's not a bit taking its place. If you look at the amount of funds in trust in South Dakota, which is becoming a really quite a major tax haven, and it's a very long way from the stereotype of the tax haven, no palm trees. In South Dakota, no white beaches at all. Um, white, and and the, the amount of money in trust in South Dakota has risen from four, 40 billion dollars uh, after the financial crisis to 250 billion last year, and that's just in one state. Um, this is massive in Nevada, it's massive in Wyoming, massive in Alaska, and huge in Delaware. Um, and, and I spoke to a, you know, the lead kleptocracy team, leader of the kleptocracy team in, in the FBI. And and I said to her, "How do you find out who owns an FBI a, a Delaware shell company?" She says she, she can't. Literally, people come to her from foreign countries say, "Who owns a, a Delaware company?" She has to tell them. There's, she can go and take a photo of the of the property where it's supposedly registered, but she can't help them beyond that. Um, you know, it is a the the, the, the chance was missed spectacularly in two thousand eight to sort this problem out, and um, and we are now in a way worse position than we were. And actually, it's interesting. One of the. the the most egregious tax havens I, I went to in the book. Nevis, which is a, a gorgeous paradise island in the Caribbean, but, but gets up to some really horrible stuff. And it's um, Premier Mark Brantley, who is who's himself an offshore lawyer and a very bright guy. Um, and he, he said to me, he said, listen, um, you think what we do is bad? You know, you think what we do is bad? Why do you think all those Russians are in London? They're not there for the weather. You know, we're just doing what you do. Yeah, that's all. We just do what you do.
3: And just to pick on Oliver's earlier point about um, transparency in the company register and resourcing, um, I think we've seen some really promising moves from the government, including obviously the recent public register of beneficial owners (laughs) overseas and the early one in 2016 with the public register of Britain itself. But the important thing is, um, is, first of all, political will to go after people who break the rules with that. So... Um, the last I checked, the only person... So it was made a criminal offence to obviously enter false company details under the new rules in 2016, but the only prosecution that I'm aware of is of an anti-corruption campaigner who tried to register um, a a company under Vince Cable's name with him as a director to show how few checks were carried out. And that's been the only prosecution. And I think that leads into... Big issue is resourcing, as you mentioned there. Um, you know, it's all very well having these rules, but say companies house is massively under resourced. They've got 80 people checking details that people put in for various companies, but they've said themselves they just don't have the resources to check every detail. So what is the point in having a law if you're not resourcing the law enforcement or the regulators enough to check it and enforce
2: it? Just jumping quickly, um, yeah, just to add to that on um, Companies House, we recently did Uh, the first ever kind of analysis of all of the companies, all of the UK companies in this register. Um, And to speak to your point, we found 4,000 companies whose beneficial owner, so the real person who's supposed to be controlling this company, were supposedly under two years old. (laughs) One of them hadn't even been born yet. (laughs) (laughs) And the government's just accepting all of this information at face value, and they're not doing anything to follow up with these cases, even when they're completely mad.
0: I'll just give yeah, a, a brief shout out to Graham Barrow, sitting over there, who, who um, did work with, on a story with Jane and me earlier um, this year. Um, he found one. Um, she's not not only is she three months old, Natasha Brown, but she's Mrs. Natasha Brown. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So she's grown up fast. Uh, so. yeah, of course,
1: th- that question and the subsequent discussion also throws up the point of post two thousand and eight. What we have had is. Uh, a really dangerous political fracturing, uh, both within countries and between countries. Uh, and now that we see that the most powerful political office in the world um, is uh, inhabited by somebody who is, has been bankrupted on more than one occasion, clearly has dodgy uh, dealings with a variety of people who sit happily in, in money land. Um, we are, in, we are in big trouble, and that's why I'd like to take this opportunity to say I'm absolutely thrilled to see people, uh, so many people, come to this, to this discussion. Um, but uh, I would also say that uh, we have got to a stage where we have to act. We have to act against what is happening in the world in terms of Trump, in terms of Bolsonaro in Brazil. I would personally argue uh, in terms of Brexit, Uh, as well, but we are in a dangerous situation. There was a question I heard to somebody the other day on the Today program, uh, which was, what was it like to live in Germany in the 1930s? And we might not quite be there yet, but we are getting there. And uh, it's our civic duty, all of us now, to engage with these issues that we've been discussing discussing today and their political implications. Uh, I'm going to take one more question before you all rush to uh, purchase um uh, Ollie's book and he'll sign it very willingly and <laughs> in here in the front.
2: Thank you. I am Marie. I am the programs director at an organization called Founders Pledge. Um, where do you locate the rise of technologies like cryptocurrencies and the blockchain, you know, you know all of that because basically the there's this kind of frenzy among the tech community that blockchain could bring a lot of transparency in financial transactions and stuff, but at the same time, I'm sure, like, you know, Bitcoin is, at the moment, being used in Monadent. So what do you say about that?
0: I was just talking to someone this afternoon about this. I was trying to understand this question myself, and I just kept going round and round in (laughs) circles. I think, like, any... From what I took away from it, I think, like, any tool, um, it can be used either negatively or positively, depending on who's using it. Um, so I'm not being swept up by either the hysteria around it or, or, the, or the positive vibes around it. I think that it's, it, is, it is what it is, and it will be used by people for both the good and ill. Um, mm-hmm. I think what we have to go back to the message we have to go back to, again and again, is we, we can't look for magic bullets to solve this problem. This is a policing mm-hmm. issue. Mm-hmm. We need to give the police and our investigative agencies the money they need to do the job they want to do. And they're, it's, they're, they are—it's not like they don't know this is happening. They're very frustrated by the fact that they can't combat this, and when they and they lose their their officers. They train them up, and they lose them to, to, to banks because banks pay four times more. This is happening, um, and, and and you know we know that our laws that we have are are absurd. You know that that the, the the regulatory system we have is absurd, and we know it is absurd that a hundred thousand, almost a hundred thousand properties in England and Wales are owned by who knows who because of this peculiarity of the way that companies work that you can have a company and not know who owns it. These are all easy wins, you know, these things could be done very straightforwardly and, and so I don't know, I mean I, I, love, I mean I love the idea of blockchain as a way of you always know who owns everything because it always brings its tail with it, but, but I mean this is, you know, this is next level stuff, let's start on the ground floor. Um,
1: just on, on blockchain, you have two, obviously two different types of blockchain, you have closed blockchains and you have open blockchains. Um, Bitcoin is an open uh, open blockchain. Look, before people thought that this was uh, uh, an interesting investment, Bitcoin in particular, basically the only thing that cryptocurrencies were used for was for buying and selling stuff on the dark net. Um, and then certainly there was a sort of speculative uh, uh, surge around Bitcoin and we got up to 20,000. $20,000 for a Bitcoin. It's now around $6,500 when I last checked. That is just, that is just speculation uh, and nothing else. There is no evidence at the moment that cryptocurrencies are being used for serious money laundering. They are being used for uh, buying narcotics and guns and, uh, and pornography on the dark net. Um, but uh, you also have the emergence of encrypted cryptocurrencies like Monero, which uh, which criminals do use a lot. But it's not for big money laundering operations. The real enemy of cryptocurrencies are central banks, who have made it clear that they do not want cryptocurrencies to replace fiat currencies because they would lose control as a as a consequence. But blockchain. Blockchain is potentially the underpinning of Web 3.0. And Web 3.0 uh, offers an opportunity to decentralize information, decentralize data, so that we will not be in hock to Facebook, Google, Twitter, uh, and Apple, and all their corporate interests, because we will own our data and not the, uh, the, the big data companies. Whether this is going to work or not, uh, I don't know, but it's as much of a battle as is the battle against corruption and, uh, and dirty money. So uh, blockchain, I think, as a technology is potentially very powerful. Cryptocurrencies, uh, I'm not so sure. And just uh, interestingly, 1% of global energy at the moment. 1% is being expended on mining cryptocurrencies, and that is utterly unsustainable and an, and an outrage. But that's a, a slightly different issue. So uh, with that fascinating <laughs> little, uh, <laughs> uh, aside, I think I'm going to bring this uh, to a close. Thank you all very much for coming. Thank you very much for coming.